Okay, so I wanted to start the podcast right there because Jim has asked me last week if I would consider doing Acts after we leave Samuel. And I hedged because I didn't remember when the last time was that I had done Acts on Tuesdays or even on Mondays or even whether I had done it in the podcast era. And it turns out that I, it was many years since I had done Acts and it's not podcasted. I don't have a podcast series on Acts. So we're going to go to the book of Acts after we leave Samuel. I think that will be good. I think it will get us in the New Testament. Um, Acts is a book that I think many Christians are unfamiliar with. You might be familiar with little bits and pieces of it in sermons, but otherwise to get the whole narrative flow of Acts is something most Christians don't have, in my experience. And as well, in the book of Acts, you get a lot of sermons. It's basically a book of sermons with other stuff that happens in and amongst them. And so I, I think it will be really good and we'll be able to have some good um, theology discussions uh, that will arise out of the book of Acts and it will tell the story of the early church. And it really tells the story that we're still part of, you see. We're 2,000 years later, but their story is our story because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Their story will be our story until Jesus returns. So that we'll, we'll do that when we finish Samuel. Then I only need to decide whether to carry the story of David all the way to his death, which would take us a little ways into the book of Kings. So we'll see when we get there. I might, I, I might do that, um, just since it's all about David, because when the book of Samuel ends, David is still alive, but you don't get the story of his passing, which is, again, like all the David stories, they're just filled with, wow, 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 okay. So we, we might do that, and then we would go from there, no matter how much you wanted to keep going in the book of Kings, because that's what happens. Because <laughs> right, then you want to, well, wait, 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 don't, we can't stop. You, we, i got to hear about Solomon. So that's called a teaser. So someday we'll come back and we'll do the book of Kings again. Last time we did it was in 2018, Karen tells me. That's a long time. So anyway, okay. I'm going to open us with prayer. Then I'll ask if there's anything y'all would like to talk about today. And I'm always, this is a place where you can bring questions that you can't, can't bring anywhere else. Where there's no other forum in which we can talk about theology and the Bible and so forth the way we can in a room here with, you know, 60 or 70 people in it. So, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. You are, you are a great God who loves us and who has provided us with this fellowship, which we love. We love to come here and see our friends and talk and laugh and make new friends and new acquaintances. And you have provided us with, trip, with scripture, which is your revelation of yourself to us, as well as our, the journal of, of your people, our people. And, and we, we know that your Holy Spirit is among us, and we know that your Holy Spirit um, will open the pages of scripture for us, just fill us with lots of energy and, enthousi and enthusiasm today as we return to these stories of David, and Absalom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, my friends, is there anything that you would like to talk about before we get rolling today?
Maggie's here. Maggie's here. Okay. <laughs> no, no, nobody? All right. Yes. Prayers and thanks for that little girl being found. For the what? Of the little girl up in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yes, yes, that, you know, it's very, it seems rare that one of those stories turns out well, huh? You know, so you heard that the little girl had gone missing, and you think, well, this is not going to have a good ending, but she was found, found, so that's great, so we do offer up a prayer of thanksgiving for that, and, you know, we await the day when these occurrences are no more, when Jesus returns, so... Anything else? Okie dokie. Well, <laughs> my kids would roll their eyes when they, every time they hear me say okie dokie. So, <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the story, we're, we're in, in these the stories of David in, first, in 2 Samuel, and we are in the midst of Absalom's rebellion. Right? So, Absalom had... Amnon had raped Tamar. Ab David did nothing about it. And two years later, Absalom took his revenge. I'm sure on revenge, revenge on his own, out of his own heart and for his sister Tamar. And he took revenge on Amnon and killed him. And then he, then he fled. Um, after a number of years, he came back to Jerusalem. And David received him in the sort of, I'm using that in the receiving in sort of the formal royal way, because that's the only thing depicted for us, is this formal way. This comes in, obeisance, little kiss, that's it. Nothing, nothing, nothing approaching a fragment of what you get in the parable of the prodigal son, right? And, and so David has neither disciplined um, Absalom, nor has he forgiven him, and as a result, Absalom sets his own course, and he begins a political campaign, right? Making his own friends. He certainly looks the part, right? He's got the good looks, and he's got the big hair. You know, I, I this is just an aside, but I was, we were watching I was watching, not we were watching, I was watching college football recently and I pointed out to Patty the Notre Dame quarterback named Sam Hartman and I said, Patty, that's a pretty good looking guy. She goes, he is. So I'm listening to the radio on Sunday while I'm driving into church at, you know, oh dark 30 and they had some talk guy on and he says, he refers to Sam Hartman at Notre Dame and says, the most handsome man in all of football, <laughs> right? And so that made me then think of Absalom. <laughs> Sam Hartman's even got a big old hair, to, head of black hair. Now, I know a lot of y'all are going to race out and Google uh, up Sam Hartman, right? Yeah, at Notre Dame. He's a Notre Dame quarterback. Don't know how good a quarterback he is, but <laughs> may not matter very much. So, that's, so Absalom's got the looks and the features and he's so handsome and he's got the hair and he really knows how to maneuver people and politics and get them on his side. So he goes to Hebron, which is not far from Jerusalem. It's the place where David um, was crowned the king of the United Tribes and Absalom declares his kingship, basically. 
and David realizes that Israel has turned against him and he and his royal court are fleeing. Um, David's even seen the betrayal of a close confidant, Ahithophel, who left David and went over to Absalom's side. And so what we are in now is a whole string of stories and encounters that, that David has with people as he is fleeing Jerusalem. And they will all matter, be, well, I'm not going to tell you why. They just all do. And the first one we had last week was where he encountered Ittai the Gittite. And Ittai the Gittite is someone who tells David that he is ready to go on with David, to flee out into the wilderness with David. And David's response is, look, you've only been involved in this for a short time. You're a foreigner. You don't have to do this. Just go back to the city, right? You don't, you, you don't, have, you don't have to do this. And it is a good moment for David when David has really had a string of very terrible moments, some of them being acts of commission, such as this taking of Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, um, and some of them are acts of omission, uh, maybe frozen by guilt and unable to deal with Absalom's murder of Amnon. But David has now got himself in this position where the throne given him by God is now going to be occupied by Absalom. And you could say, well, but Absalom is anointed by God. Well, well, yeah, but if David is fleeing the city, for all intents and purposes, Absalom is going to be, going to be king. And we will see David responding to not only the, the tribal, um, the tribal view of who's king, but also God's view in the coming verses. So let's get us back into, um, uh, oh, let's go back to the story of Ittai. Um, let's go to verse 21 in the story of Ittai. Af after uh, King David, David has said, you don't need to come with us. You don't need to come with us. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as Yahweh lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there, your, there will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So David gives Ittai permission to stay in Jerusalem, but Ittai doesn't take it. So he is a what? A, a loyal man to David in this time of rebellion. In a time of rebellion, loyalty counts for a lot. David wants to know who is on his, who is with him in this. And Ittai, the Gittite, I love that, really. It's like a t-shirt. Ittai, the Gittite, um, <laughs> is, it says, yeah, I am. So, the whole, verse 23, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley. That's just outside um, the, the city walls. Cross that. On the other side is the Mount of Olives, and on the other side is the wilderness area. He crossed the Kidron Valley, valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. 
They're just heading east. That's all it is. Just heading east, right there. I have, on my phone, when it rings, I have um, Henry Purcell's trumpet tune, which you would recognize if you heard. And one time when Nate was real little, my phone rang, and he said, that sounds like Jesus. <laughs> so did that ringtone. So there we go, you know. Je isn't there a book, Jesus Calling? <laughs> okay. All right. So the whole countryside, you know, people are coming in. And even if they're torn between who they're going to support, because you know that a lot of the people know what David did years before, they know. They know. And now David is fleeing, and Absalom's coming, and it's just a time of great sadness. You see, these are all, these are all family members. They're all cousins. They're all, they're all, they're all the family of Abraham. Um, if you go to a place like Denmark, the Danes are all cousins. They started accepting immigrants, and you know, in the last decades. But until that point, the country was made up of they're all cousins. And that's a very different thing than for America, right? Where we have people coming in from all over the world. Always have had people coming in. Sort of the melting pot thing, right? Or whatever, you might want to think about it. So, so this is not that. These are all cousins that are wrapped up in this time of rebellion. And I imagine for many people, they don't really, there doesn't even seem to be a big like political purpose to it all. It's just, it's father, David, son, Absalom. Absalom is hurt. Um, David has been frozen into inaction. And here we end up with the rival for the kingship of David. So, verse 24. Zadok. Remember Zadok? Zadok is the priest. Zadok is the priest. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites, that's the family of priests, who were with him, were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. So when David flees, the priests who are loyal to David take with them the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now this is very, very significant. There is not a temple at this time. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sure, was kept in, probably in some sort of structure. We're not told a lot about it. But to carry the Ark of the Covenant of God with them says huge, huge things about their view of whom God is behind in this, whom God is with in this. So much so that much later in the story of the kings, when there is open revolt by the ten northern tribes against the southern tribe of Judah, the man leading the northern tribes in revolt is um, named Jeroboam. And he, in order to deal with the significance of the Ark of the Covenant and the temple being under the control of the tribe of Judah, builds two golden calves for 
the people of the northern tribes to worship. Now, if you're going to, if you're saying to me, that's, that's crazy. It is crazy. It's like the worst thing possible, but he puts one up at Dan in the north and one in Bethel in the south, kind of on the border, if you want to think about that way, between Judah and the northern tribes. It's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, but it illustrates the way the Ark of the Covenant would be viewed. So it's not a small thing at all. It's a big thing that when David flees, he's fleeing with the Ark. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. So there is a religious significance to this departure. And the priests do the priestly thing. These sacrifices they would offer are an integral part of their religion. How do we see them? I came up with a metaphor a long time ago that I really liked and I've stuck with it. They are like a splint. You know, if you break your leg, a splint helps hold it together and helps you function, but it doesn't heal things. It might help healing, but you, you've still got the broken leg when you leave the doctor's office with the splint on. So in that way, the, sac the system of priests and sacrifices would enable these God to live with these people, but it isn't the healing. It isn't the end goal. The splint isn't the end goal. The splint is merely to get you through until you have that healing. And of course, for the Israelites, that healing comes a thousand years later in the person of Jesus Christ. That, that clear? That was a lot of shorthand in all that. But, you, you know, there are a lot of ways to talk about this, but that's, that's one of a thousand. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tricked me there, Andy. Okay. So, the priests have put down the ark. They have offered sacrifices there. All the people have now left the city. Verse 25. The king, David, says to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. Wow. This is another good moment for David. Remember the mistake that the way back early in the book of Samuel, when the Israelites took the ark of the covenant out of the tabernacle and took it into battle with them and the Philistines, figuring it would be like some sort of, you know, magic army that would enable them to defeat the Philistines. And what happened? The Philistines got the thing. They stole it. They, they got it. They ended up with the Ark of God. And what happened after that? Well, pretty soon they wanted to do nothing else but give it back. <laughs> because it inflicted people with all kinds of sores and boils and knocking over their idols and all these other great stories back in 1 Samuel, you know, 6 and 7 back in there. But this is a good moment. Um, <clears throat> The Ark of the Covenant is not to be used this way. Not to be used this way. And David says, If I find favor in Yahweh's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I'm ready. I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to God. Let God do to me whatever seems good to God. 
if I go back, if God finds favor, I'll return. I'll be back with the ark. I'll be back with the place where God dwells. But if God doesn't find favor with me, then I, I'm okay. I'm ready for that. That's another good moment for David. You know, we went a long time without having good moments for David. And I call them good moments. I mean, where you see a David, much like the David we saw in the chapters leading up to his taking of Bathsheba, which seems so out of character for David. And I think it, it, it was out of character for David. That is part of what sin is. Sin is this monster that waits to grab us and, and um, sin causes us to do things that really are out of our character. We give in. We give in to temptations. We give in to darkness. We give in to coveting or we give in to, we give in to anger or lust or greed and we there might be lots of reasons we do it. But David did. But here now we see, we see the David who repents of his sin. The David of Psalm 51, right? The song, the psalm he writes after his taking of Bathsheba and his confrontation with Nathan when he realizes what he has allowed this, he wouldn't use these words, this beast called sin to do, that he gave in. You know, lots of times in popular language, we will refer to somebody who does a terrible, terrible, terrible thing as an evil person. And theologically, Biblically, we should not. A person who commits a terrible, terrible, evil act is a person who has chosen to embrace that darkness and revels in it. But even then, they are still made in the image of God. Even then, Jesus died for them. Even then, God loves them. David does not place himself out of God's love because of his taking of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. But those are evil acts. But that is, it's a far cry to then calling somebody an evil person as if they are beyond God's power of redemption. And so I, 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 I try to police my language when... Um, I encounter people who just seem filled with evil and nothing else. And that also tends to make evil seem like a sort of a force. It's not. It is the choosing, it is the choosing to destroy goodness. Someone snatches a nine-year-old girl. What do we fear? That it's going to be somebody who wants to destroy the goodness that is that child. 
right? That's what evil e is. Evil is the destruction of the good. It's not a, it's not a force. This is not like Star Wars, you know? It's, it's not that at all. Evil is a word we use to describe that which destroys the good. And some people give themselves over to it. I don't know why, but they do. But that doesn't mean they are beyond God's love or the possibility of God's redemption. So, any thoughts about that? Yes? Well, that's such an interesting opinion on that situation because I think we've all got that element of evil within. Well, we all have sin. We, <coughs> there's a darkness within the human heart. Why did we right? Why do we do that? And and it but it but it's but it's for some people they just give themselves over to it without asking themselves that question. You see, what did David do? He did two terrible things. He took Bathsheba, but then he murdered her husband. And what is Psalm fifty one? Why did I do that? Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. I imagine David in the writing of that psalm is just, he can't believe what he did, right? So, so yeah, standard piece of Christian theology is that there is a darkness in the human heart and we call it sin, and everybody has it. It is the, it, it is, well, to use the G.K. Chesterton quote another time, it is the only empirically proven Christian doctrine because you can open your eyes and look around at this world and see the truth of it, <laughs> right? Nobody escapes. You just have to sometimes fight it even, right? It's like mothers tell their sons. Nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> so don't put yourself in this situation where you'll be tempted beyond your own capacity to fight it, right? That's the idea. So that, that's, actually, that's actually wisdom, is avoiding, trying to avoid these temptations. What's the Lord's Prayer about? Lead me not into temptation. Not that God leads us into temptation, but dear God, please help me avoid these situations, right? To make, where I will make Better choices, not poorer choices, but sometimes, in truth, everybody makes poorer choices. So, anyway. So, we see the good David... <laughs> we see David's goodness emerging here. Okay, send the ark back. Verse 27. Now, David is also a practical man. He's got a rebellion on his hands. His own son has rebelled against him. So the king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and stayed there. So David's good act of sending the Ark back to Jerusalem is also a practical one. 
Those don't have to oppose one another. Because Zadok and the sons can be people who keep David informed of what's happening in the city. Now, do I think that means what the words David says above are insincere? No, I think they're sincere. Uh, uh, just because you do a good act doesn't mean it can't have, you know, practical, it can't be a practical help to you. Um, so, Zadok and Abiathar and the sons are going to go back to the city with the ark and there they will be ready um, to, to be a communication. That'll be like what? Like the telegraph to David or something like that. Because the priests would have some ability to come and go kind of as they wish in the way others would not. Okay? So, 29, Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives. You just leave the city. You go down into the Kidron Valley right there. It's all very close together and small. And then up on the Mount of Olives and then down the backside. You know, in a car with not much traffic, it would take 15 minutes to leave Jerusalem, cross the Kidron Valley, and up and over the Mount of Olives. That's even if a light or two gets you. Now, the truth is, there's always traffic. And it takes forever to get around that side of Jerusalem when you're trying to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. But that's another story. Okay? So David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. He's in mourning. Why do you think he's weeping? He's lost power. But I think he feels like he's maybe failed God as well. He's failed God? Lost his son. Amnon is dead at Absalom's head, hand, and now Absalom is rebelling against David. David has lots of reasons to weep. Personally, I think he's weeping over his inability, unwillingness to embrace Absalom, to forgive him, and now the loss of this son. I think the son is the most important emotional piece of this for me. But but that but that's me. So you you know, we'll see, we'll see kind of where this heads. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel was one of David's counselors, is, you know, one of his conciliaries, in, like in The Godfather, one of his closest advisors. Um, and Ahithophel went over to the other side. Went over to Absalom like a chapter and a half ago. <laughs> so David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Okay, that's an interesting prayer. So David goes to God 
And he says, God, please let Ahithophel advise my son Absalom foolishly. Really bad advice, really bad counsel because Absalom will listen to Ahithophel because Ahithophel was a trusted close advisor to David. So Absalom's going to tend to give Ahithophel's you know, advice a lot of credit. <laughs> That's so interesting to me that David would pray to God, okay, turn Ahithophel's advice into foolishness. Yeah. See, David is, David's always kind of a practical guy too, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Do you think he would like his kingship back? Like to be back in Jerusalem? Yeah, I don't think there's conflicts and all. He wants the kingship back. I imagine he wants to be reconciled with Absalom. I don't know, I'm not sure that he knows what he wants in that relationship actually, but sure. He'd probably, he'd probably, what is he, what would he really like? I bet he would really like to go back in time and have a chance to do it all over. On that warm afternoon when he sent the troops into battle and he's bored and he looks out across and he spies the wife of one of his trusted warriors, Uriah, if he'd just like to go back and say, no, no, I'm going to go in and Put a, put, put a game on or something like that. Open a beer, have a beer, whatever. Well, verse 32. When David arrived at the summit, this is not a long walk. This is not a big climb. Lauren, you've been there. The Mount of Olives, calling it a mountain, is making a molehill into a mountain. <laughs> right? It's, it's a ridge mountain. It's not high. There's, it's just you go up. I could do, you could just walk up it. People do it over in, in, the East, in East Jerusalem every day. They just walk up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And then when you reach it, you go down the other side. But it's not like a summit. The way you think of a summit, it's a ridge. It's, it's a ridged mountain. A humpback mountain, they call them sometimes. Well, when David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, why would they worship God or anything, anyone, any, or pagan gods at that top of that, at the top of this ridgeline, at the high point? Closer. Closer. That's where you go to worship gods. That's why temples, sanctuaries, other things are built on the highest spots. What if you don't have any high spots? <laughs> you know, you like living. Does Nebraska have any high spots? Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, Egypt. Babylonia. It's just flat. You build one. So you build, you build the ziggurats and hanging gardens in Babylon and you build the pyramids in Egypt because you got no mountains. So, yeah, that's what you do. You build some of your own. That's, that's basically the idea behind why those structures are what they are that are reach upward to the gods. No, no, I think the, 
I think they are so they can be seen. The, like the, what we have on top of our church is there to proclaim to the world the good news of Jesus Christ. Please come and see. We're that place. Right? Come here. Uh, same way with bells. Why do we have, why do, why do bells ring when the neighbors don't complain too much about it? Some churches have bells. Every, all the neighbors complain now. So a lot of churches don't ring them anymore. But, but why did they ring bells? Because there was a calling people either to church or just generally reminding the neighborhood that the church that the church is there okay so now we're going to meet somebody else okay Hushai the archite was there to meet him his robe torn and dust on his head and David said to him if you go with me you will be a burden to me but if you return which is interesting thing to say <laughs> but if you return to the city Hushai and say to Absalom, Your Majesty, I will be your servant. Now David's getting very practical. Hushai, if you return to Absalom and you say, Your Majesty, I, Hushai, will be your servant. I was your father's David's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Dear Absalom, Then David goes on, then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. So, Hushai is another close advisor to David. I think we might have encountered him early, earlier. But he's going to send Hushai back and tell Hushai to be basically, what? Kind of like, like a spy and an agent. Mole. Yeah, a mole. And not just a mole who's going to take notes and stuff. A mole who's going to actually do things. He's supposed to make sure that Absalom gets the very worst advice possible. Because David doesn't know if God's going to really, truly, gen genuinely answer his prayer and turn Ahithophel into a master of foolishness. So he's going to send Hushai back and say, look, we've got to make sure that Absalom makes some really bad decisions. And so he's going to send him back in secret. And he says to him, because Hushai is, I mean, that's a, that's a big ask, right? That's a big ask for him to go back and do that. What if he's found out? What if Absalom figures it out? Hushai's life? would probably be, probably be forfeit at that point. So David says, Won't the priests, Sadok and Abiathar, be there with you? You will have compatriots. We're, we're going to have like a little network of informants and spies and agents. Hushai, Zadok, Abiathar. Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace, their two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So David has now put in place this entire spy network in Absalom in the palace. True? Yeah. So Hushai, David's confidant, just to remind you that Hushai is right there. You know, he's been with David, he's one of David, like, 
like Hithophel was, this close inner circle, he's going to go back and swear himself to, to Absalom. So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. So David and, and his folks have left. They're now up at the top of Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, and they're going to continue going eastward, down into the wilderness, the Jordan River Valley, and maybe stay down there or just continue, continue eastward. We'll see. Now, so any thoughts, questions, or reflections at this point? Yes, Jim? So my question is, why would David send the ark back to Jerusalem knowing that Abelop is going to get there? Abelop's son is going to get there. Because he wants the priest to go back there and be part of his okay. informant network. And the only excuse the priests have for being there is because that's where the Ark of the Covenant and is. he wasn't worried about Absalom doing anything to the ark. Oh no. Absalom needs the ark there. It's it's the right. He needs the ark there. Um, and but again, I, I don't let that diminish David's sincerity when he says, Look, I don't know what God wants. If God's pleased with me, I will go back to Jerusalem myself. But if he if he's not, I won't, but I'm I'm ready ready for that. But he is a practical man just because you, okay, so, you know, Robert Hasley. Robert Hasley was a deeply faithful man to God, deep faith, man of deep faith, but that didn't mean he didn't very practically set about his work, Robert's work, of building this church, right? The practicalities of meeting people and gathering people and, and raising the funds needed and all that kind of practical stuff that a lot of times people don't want to hear about. They don't want to talk about the practical aspects of in, in a place like St. Andrew. But if you don't attend to those practical aspects, there would be no St. Andrew. That's what Robert understood, right? Okay, so anything else? Yes, Phil. Would sending the ark back also allow him to move more tactically in any way he needed to without having to carry the ark with him? It certainly would be, I mean, the ark is a little cumbersome. And we saw what happened one time when the ark was sliding off the cart and that poor guy touched it and died. So, but I don't think that's the key. The key is that the ark gets the... The ark going back signifies that the ark will be where it should be, which is in Jerusalem, like David took it there in the first place. And practically speaking, it gets the priests back there where they can be informants for David and keep him informed of what's going on in the city. Because otherwise, David's got enough people to move the ark around. Okay. Verse six, chapter 16, when David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, just on the other side, just on the eastern side, there was Ziba. Now, you might not remember Ziba. Ziba, Ziba is the steward of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is the little boy 
right, son of Jonathan, who was dropped when everybody was running from the palace after Saul's death, and he was injured. And David tracked him down and invited him to come. Remember in, in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, I think, then um, to come and, and Mephibosheth was afraid because he was like the lone survivor of Saul's family and household and usually they would be like off with their heads, but that's not David. It was a good moment for David. David invited Mephibosheth to stay, um, provided for him, and invited him to sit at David's table every day if that's what, he's, what he wanted. So, Ziba is Mephibosheth's head steward. Person, the, the, the person who, who has been helping Mephibosheth, running Mephibosheth household and so forth. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys, saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, a hundred cakes of raisins, a hundred cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. And the king asked Ziba, well, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household. Oops, page turn to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. He's bringing gifts. And the king then asked the most relevant question, where's your master's servant? Where's your master's grandson? Where is Mephibosheth, the master being Saul? Where is your master's grandson? And Ziba said to him, He's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. So what does he, what is he but telling David? That Mephibosheth is not only choosing to stay in Jerusalem, seemingly on Absalom's side, but he's waiting there thinking the people are going to get so disgusted with all of this, they're going to give the kingship back to the household of Saul and the crown will be put on Mephibosheth's head. So that's betrayal piled on top of betrayal, on top of betrayal. That's multi-layer betrayal. That's like a three-layer cake. Whew. Man, David, that, those words must have cut through David like a knife. You know, David's probably thinking to himself, well, and, you know, that's why people get rid of everybody from from the ex-king's household because it's exactly this. I invited him to my table. I told him he could sit at my table every day. I provided for him. I made life good for him. And this, this, is, this is what he's doing? Then the king said to Ziba, I, as king without a throne, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Now that little interchange you need to hang on to. 
because you are still not through with Mephibosheth. It's just to make sure that by the end of his story, you actually can pronounce his name. <laughs> I practiced a long time to master Mephibosheth. Let me tell you. Okay, so we've met Ittai, we've encountered Zadok who was sent back to the city, Hushai who David explicitly sent back in order to frustrate in the advice that um, Ahithophel is going to give Absalom. We are now, we have now met Ziba. Mephibosheth steward. You see, when I said that we're now in this pretty long section, whereas David's fleeing, he's encountering all these different people. Well, as King David approached Behurim, a, a little bit of something on the east side there, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. People have long memories. You ever known somebody who is really good at carrying a grudge? Year after year after year after year. In Patty's family, uh, in a distant part of Patty's family, there was a married couple who lived across the street from parents and hadn't spoken to them in 25 years because of something that happened 25 years ago. That's sadly, that's not a rare story. There are people who just like to oh, nurse their grudges and feed their grudges and I think maybe it's sometimes it makes them feel self-righteous and they just can't get off it. They just can't, they just won't get off it. And it goes year after year after year. You can see it in families. You can see it, you can see it in politicians because they're human too. You know, just like, okay, okay. But Shammai is from the household of David. That's why you're told, the household of Saul. That's why you're told which clan he's in, because it's going to be significant. That's who Shemaiah is. He's from Team Saul. Team Saul. Well, his name was Shemai, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out of his house. So I always picture David kind of, you know, kind of going by. He's riding some little, you know, donkey or something. Uh, maybe he's even barefoot and walking and and Shammai comes out of his house runs through his front yard they didn't really have yards and stuff like we do now but yeah he runs through the front yard and he's cursing and he's shouting and he's cursing and he's shouting and 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 some four-letter words are all coming out he's angry he's upset he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones Whoa. That is really not courage. C 
Courage is one of the virtues, one of, one of the fundamental virtues of Aristotle. That's not courage. That is foolhardiness. Death wish. That's, that's just like, are you crazy? You don't know how this thing's going to end. Are you crazy what you're coming out now, not just cursing at David, but now you're pelting him and his officials with stones, you're throwing rocks at him, you got out of your garden? Oh. He throw, he pelts. David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and all the special guard were on David's right and left. So he's got an escort, and that guy's heaving. Heaving stones in there, and cursing, and screaming, and, you know, spittles coming out of his mouth, and he's just like gone crazy. As he cursed, so this is going on. Shammai said, get out. Get out, you murderer. He knows the stories. He knows the truth. I bet you everybody does. Get out. Get out, you murderer. You scoundrel. Yahweh has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you are a murderer. Now David actually never murdered anybody in the household of Saul, but... Is the charge of being a murderer true? Yeah. Yes. Even if Shammai's got the target wrong, it's a true statement. Does David know the truth of the statement? Yes, indeed he does. Indeed he does. You've come to ruin because you are a murderer. Hmm. I think, I think back to the prophet Nathan who says, you are that man. I always picture him pointing his finger at David. You are that man. You are that taker. You have brought the sword into your house. And now this is where it has brought David. David knows that he has come to ruin because he did murder. Then Abishai, son of Zuriah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and I'm going to cut off his head. See? Yeah, I mean, death wish is about the right phrase to use with respect to Shammai. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because Yahweh said to him, Curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? There is for these ancient people a very strong belief that all things that happen, happen because of God's immediate hand in it. God is the first cause of all things. Not a secondary cause, there's a third tertiary cause. God is the first cause of all things. God, or if you're, if you're not Jewish, um, if you're not an Israelite, you're a uh, Canaanite, the gods, doesn't matter. Why does it rain today? 
Because God makes it. Why does it not rain tomorrow? Because God makes it. Why is it going to get cooler tomorrow and Thursday in Plano and Frisco and Texas? Because God is finally showing his mercy to us. <laughs> right? That's, they, they don't have any explanations for almost anything that happens in life. Why does so-and-so struck down by some mysterious illness? They just seem to get sick and died. Why did that happen? Because God took them, you know. Um, we live, blessedly, I think, in a time when we understand much more about God's good creation. And as a hence, we can have doctors and medicine and all this to provide good care and healing to people. Um, but David is, you know, today people would come to see something like this and they would say David is fatalistic, which means he just, it's, it's out of his hands. If, if, this is what God sh if this is what God told Shammai to do, then who am I to say? And David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. There you have it. That's why there's weeping. That's why he's in mourning. That's why he's barefoot. That's it. It isn't simply losing the throne. That happens. He's a pretty smart guy. He could probably figure out how to get the throne back. He's already put some of that into place. That's not it. It is the fact that my son, my own flesh and blood, at this point his eldest son, because Absalom killed Amnon. My own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. David is right to fear Absalom at this point. The only way Absalom can cement his hold on the throne is for David to die. David would not have ascended to the throne except, except Saul was killed in battle. David would have had to wait, I don't know, how much longer. My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Who cares? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For Yahweh's told him to do it. It may be that Yahweh will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David has all these ideas in his head, right? My son, my son is trying to kill me. God is taking away my covenant blessing. Who cares about this Benjaminite guy named Shammai? Let him go back into his house. What does David want? To be reconciled with Absalom, which he had the opportunity to do. And passed it by. And he wants to be back in the favor of the Lord. The covenant blessing restored to him. This isn't at all, when you read 2 Samuel 7 and the promises and so forth that David makes, that God makes to David, could you have imagined all of this? No. And why does it happen? Does God smite him in some way? No. David sees Bathsheba, and he wants her, and he takes her. And in a futile attempt to cover it up, he goes so far as killing 
Uriah. David does it. Can't blame God for any of that. David does it. Yeah. David made his choices. And they were terrible choices. David made many, many good choices. But you see, you. I worked for a guy once who um, came to Texas. Actually, I came to Texas to work for him. And he took me out to breakfast after ignoring me for like six weeks. And I wondered what the heck I had done. But any done here, come moving here. But anyway, so he takes me directly and says, okay. You're going to make some mistakes, Scott. That's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. My job is to help make sure you don't make mistakes we can't fix. And that's where they, that's the pickle David finds himself in. These are not small mistakes David made. These are huge mistakes David made. I don't think I personally know anyone who has murdered somebody. I've known people who have ended up in prison. I had a classmate, an actual classmate, class of 78 from Harvard Business School who went to prison. But murdering somebody? No. Mm -mm. So, but that's, that, that is what David did. It's about as bad as it gets. Okay, anything else? Verse 13. So David and his men continued, continued along the road while Shammai was going along the hillside opposite him. <laughs> the guy does not give up. <laughs> Cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The guy is relentless. Look how long this story is going on. All the time, Shammai's out there cursing stones, dirt, everything else, all heaping them all on David. <gasps> the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. I bet. And he, they've gone to Bahurim. And there he refreshed himself. There they stopped. They're going to gather themselves and refresh themselves. That's really, where do you go? Right? I don't think Bahurim is on this map. Oh, here it is. You know, I, there are aspects of this map that I don't like too much. I mean, it, it implies that this is a big old long distance and it's not, but Bahurim would be a place to the east. I think if we if we walked it in these days, we'd find it uh, further away than this. Not simply sitting on just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, but in any event. All right. So, any thoughts or reflections? Okay. Verse fifteen. Meanwhile. It's like the movies, you know? So we have these scenes, David and Ittai, and David and this, and David and this, and now we've had this big long scene where David's getting cursed out by the guy coming out in his front yard. And now meanwhile, cut scene, go back to Jerusalem, right? <laughs> cut scene, go back to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hishite the archite, David's confident, confidant, 
went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! Because Hushai is going to suck up with everything he's got. He's going to get his way into Absalom's inner circle. Why? Because David wants him to go into that inner circle and frustrate um, Absalom's ambitions and plans. Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show your friend? He's suspicious. Hushai. This is the love you show your friend David by running over here to me and hollering out, long live the king, long live the king. If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Hushai said to Absalom, no, the one chosen by Yahweh, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Now, have we seen any reason why Absalom would think that he is like chosen by God for this? Any anointing ceremony, you know? But oh, he would like it all to be true and it's flattery of the best order. Flattery. What? He's buttering them up. You know, if you want to flatter somebody, you can't. A big element has to be to tell them what they want to hear. What does Absalom want to hear? Oh, yes, you're the one. You're the one. You're the one. Capital O one. You're the one. You're the one. And I need to be with you. I'm going to remain with you. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the Son just as I serve the Father, so I will serve you? Because if David dropped dead of a heart attack, Absalom is the rightful heir because he is the eldest son. True? Just right? Okay. So Absalom then said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? And Ahithophel answered, saying, Sleep with your father's concubines. Now this is not snooze time. You get that, right? Ahithophel <laughs> answered, Have sex with your father's concubines. Remember, David left behind how many concubines to run the palace? Ten. Have sex with the concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father. And the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. As if to say, Okay, here's what you got to do, Absalom. You got to have sex with these concubines that are your father's concubines. And by doing so, you will take what is a rift between you and your father, easily healed, and turn it into an unbridgeable chasm. Thereby saying to everybody who's with us, Absalom, that there's no going back. Gonna make them resolute. There's no going back. 
we've well past the point of return. If you're going to take these concubines that David left behind and force yourself upon them, what is the irony in this advice? He's going to have Absalom do to these concubines what David did to Bathsheba. <laughs> you're reading ahead. <laughs> Somebody over here. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the, ro on the roof. What is it with these roofs? So, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You know, here in Texas, you know, a lot of the roofs I see are so steep, they all just go rolling off instantly. <laughs> so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with it. right. He had sex with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. In other words, everybody knows this. Wow. 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 That's kind of a wow moment, don't you think? And I think we need to end on that wow moment. Yes. He did. He sure did. If you go back and you look at chapter 12, this is the continuation. If you go back and look at what Nathan says, then we'll do that in the last, in the last moment here of class today because I have two minutes left. Go back to Nathan in chapter 12. Good grief. Go to verse 11 of Nathan's speech in chapter 12. This is what Yahweh says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Concubines are merely second wives. Okay? So, yes. David drops a stone in the water and the ripples continue to work outward. Right? They do. They do. I don't think there's even, I don't think there's anything supernatural about it. it this, this is what David is reaping because of what he has sown himself. And when we come back next week, we're going to pick it up right there with this piece of advice from Ahithophel to David. So any other thoughts or questions before I pray us out of here? Yes? Because now, he, okay, so the question is, if Amnon, Absalom, thought he had to defend his sister after she was raped by Amnon, how could he turn around himself and take these, second wi these wives of David? Because now, if nothing else, he's king. And what are kings? Takers. Takers. You know? Yeah, now that's not a very satisfying answer, is it? No, it's not. But 
whether we, what we should not be surprised is when we find similar kinds of things happening in our old world where somebody will do an action and then they will turn around and a terrible thing and they'll turn around and embrace it themselves. You know, it shouldn't be that way at all. Um, but, but it is. And so now he's king, he's got this advice, figures, why not? Um, and so he's gonna, he's, gonna, he's gonna take these concubines. So ask yourself, David has prayed to God for Ahithophel to give David bad advice, right? And so Ahithophel gave, the first advice Ahithophel gives Absalom is, the taking of David's concubines. So how do you think that's gonna work out? Probably not well. Probably not well. Okay, very good, I'll pray us out of here. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, just um, remind us of your deep and abiding love for us. Help us to appreciate the power of your grace and mercy that overwhelms the sin and the darkness that lies in all of our hearts. Help us to be a grateful people that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled with you. We have been reconciled with you. Help us to be grateful every single day for this gift that you have given us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.